Hello and welcome to What the Tech from Boast AI, where we talk with some of the brilliant minds behind new and exciting tech initiatives to learn what it takes to tackle technological uncertainty and eventually change the world. Today, I am thrilled to welcome to the show from Silico Labs, Benjamin Alsbury-Neely, co-founder and CEO, and Kyla Alsbury-Neely, co-founder and chief operating officer. Benjamin and Kyla are driving some serious innovation over at Silico Labs, leveraging emerging technology to bridge the gap between neuroscience and artificial intelligence. They do this by creating tools that enable anyone to leverage tech like virtual reality, augmented reality, and AI within a framework designed for creativity and collaboration. The results? Silco Labs customers can easily create virtual experiences that simulate real-world scenarios to train and assess human and AI behavior, saving precious time and resources. It's a hot market for sure, and one steeped in research and development, and we're excited to ask Benjamin and Kyla how they got into the space in the first place, the many applications and use cases of their cutting-edge tech, and their opinion on what it takes to succeed in the current startup ecosystem. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Benjamin and Kyla. Hi, thanks for having us. That was an awesome intro. And a lot of people don't nail exactly what we do, but I think that was a very good synopsis. So thanks for that. I'm really excited to speak with you both. As I was telling you earlier, our guests are our audience. So I love speaking to founders who have been in it and can really share strategies and tips. But for starters, let's hear about your background. I'd love to know. Tell us about who you guys are, how you got into the space, and I guess how you founded Silica Labs in the first place. You're sitting next to each other. So I assume there's some relation here. Yes, we are uh, business partners and partners in life. And I guess maybe we'll start from the partners in life aspect. When Kyle and I first met, we actually spent the first, I think, six weeks of our relationship actually training for a triathlon, which we both had not done before. But Kyla had signed up, I think, a week before we met. And I was like, well, I just finished my first marathon. Like, let's do this. And so Kyla didn't know how to bike and I didn't know how to swim. Not very well, at least on either front. And so we just spent the first six weeks teaching each other and training with each other and you know, got across the finish line and went on to do half Ironman triathlons. And then in 2017, I decided to go back. I was working in finance at the time and not really enjoying that too much and decided to go back to do a PhD and then convince Kyla to follow suit. That's kind of our origin story. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Kyla. Yeah, I mean, I think with the startup now, you know, we just like choosing things that are going to challenge ourselves. So we've now done, you know, Ironman, half Ironmans together. Now we've done PhD together. Now we're doing a startup. So we're just really trying to one up each other every time for the extra challenge. Yeah, I think the startup is definitely the the height of challenge. It's been harder than I think anything that we've done before. And that's really great. We had to work shoulder to shoulder throughout uh, COVID and we still really like each other, still going strong and then still pushing each other. I think we can kind of make it through anything, which is, is is really cool. So we don't have those typical worries about working with your spouse and founding a company with your spouse. Those are kind of non-issues for us, which is really cool. But we could talk a little bit about the company as well, how that started organically grew out of this story. So when I started my PhD in 2017, I was in the psychology department at the University of Toronto doing cognitive neuroscience research. And what I was really interested in was studying human behavior in real world environments. So a lot of the types of experiments and studies that we do in psychology is very abstract. You know, we might give people surveys to do, or we might bring them into the lab and bombard them with images and videos and pretend that that kind of emulates the real world experience and strap them into a bunch of devices and try to get eye tracking data and brainwave data and all that kind of stuff. But it's very abstract from the real world. With emerging tech like uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, we can now actually simulate 
simulate the real world pretty closely and put people into those simulations and and not only put them in, but actually capture the behavior as they're in those simulations. So the really cool part about uh, XR technology, VR and augmented reality is that it relies on a ton of sensors to actually create these simulations. So there's eye tracking sensors, there's hand tracking sensors, there's face tracking sensors, there's body, you know, body capture sensors on these devices. And so those are necessary to create that experience. But as a researcher, those data points are things that we can actually capture. And so when we put somebody into one of these simulations, not only can we emulate the real world, but we can actually capture rich data that we wouldn't otherwise be able to just by observing people doing things in the real world. So it's very exciting technology. And when I started trying to figure out how can we use this technology in research, I quickly realized that the folks that were actually utilizing the technology were very well-funded labs that were specialized in using this technology. They had built out full development teams. And as the PhD students or the researchers in those labs would really just come up with the concept for an experiment. And once that concept was kind of created and hashed out, they would just pass that off to a development team to actually develop that. And then it would go through iterations, much like if you wanted to go out and into the world and build a training simulation or a custom kind of VR app, you would have to go to you know a development firm to do that. But I didn't have those resources. The lab that I was in was a fairly new lab, and I was still very adamant about figuring this out. So I started designing, dabbling in game development engines, figuring out how to you know utilize those. And through that process, started designing tools that would speed up the process to design and, and implement and experiment in academia. You want to be creating tasks and running studies as fast as you can. There's a publisher parish kind of mentality. So you need to be getting papers out the door. And those tools that I started creating, people started hearing about them in the department and uh, started utilizing them in other labs. And then word spread to other universities, Columbia University, folks there started using it. And, you know, at that point, we really kind of realized like, oh, this is like a huge problem that people are facing in this space. So we founded Silico Labs to kind of address that problem and to build out the infrastructure that's necessary for this next wave of immersive technologies and research. That's Incredible. You guys put yourselves through the gamut between the pandemic, a triathlon wasn't enough. We're going to get PhD. We're going to go really dive in deep. We're going to develop a whole infrastructure for companies and research labs and academia to leverage. That's going to be a game changer. So that is very cool. The hunger and the drive. It is evident. I also love how you had mentioned too that like training goes part and parcel with a lot of what needs to be done to get XR and to get these different kind of solutions out there. My past was in computer vision. And I think I was blown away to see that it's not just necessarily pointing a camera at something. I know computer vision is less of the beacon and sensor technology that you guys are working with in the AR space or in the VR space. But the amount of kind of human interaction and that infrastructure that you were describing that goes into actually getting these things off the ground it is significant and it is something that I think goes unspoken. So I imagine, again, lots of R&D and that probably is a huge part of what you do. Could you tell me a little bit about what the process for developing it has been? I know you teed that up a little bit, but I'd love to know a little bit more about like the timelines for actually building the product, the timelines for partnering with the partners that you guys do have. Could you speak to that a little bit more? 
I think one thing that I've come to realize is that it just takes a long time and a lot of iterations to get things right. Like, you know, you really can't rush things when you're building something that is as big and dynamic and has as many features as what we've built is. It takes a lot of iteration. And so there's been a lot of times, for, for lack of a better phrase, like where I've just had to kill the baby. You create something that you have put so much time into and you realize I've learned that through this process, there is a better way of doing this. And really the only way to do that better way is to kind of almost start from scratch and start building again. And I think that with the framework we have now, I think that that has happened maybe four times at this point where it has been just a massive overhaul. And I mean, that comes along with creating something innovative, but also as a, a founder, you kind of have to learn everything. And it takes a long time to learn how to use a game development engine, to code in that game development engine, to start starting to create a user interface with graphics and stuff. So like learning Adobe Illustrator to create buttons. And, you know, these are all things that take a, a really long time and, and take a long time to develop personally those skills. And I think, you know, that's one thing as a founder, you really have to be like aware of is things are going to take a long time and you have to be patient. And I, I'd like to say that we push really hard. And I think sometimes it just, you know, you're pushing really hard and you're expecting certain outcomes by certain times. But those things typically, I don't know, in our experience just don't happen and things take a lot longer than, than you expect them to take. So I think more generally on the R&D front is just like the patience of working through and iterating on things so that when you do end up going to your first customer that you have something that is well tested. And on that front, I think maybe Kyle, you could talk a little bit about how we've approached rolling out the product so far. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've really built the software kind of in collaboration with our users. So I would say that Benjamin was the first beta tester of our software. Yeah. Um, you know, we have experienced the problems that we're trying to address firsthand. It's been really exciting for me. So I have a bit more of a healthcare background. I'm actually a physical therapist. I've practiced clinically for nine years. And I'm also finishing up my PhD in rehab sciences at U of T. So I've got some of the clinical and the research background. And so although the idea for the software really came out of Benjamin's research and area, we've realized there's massive applications in my field as well. So that's been really cool. And we've been able to include some rehab scientists as some of our beta testers. So for our beta testing, we, we've done two rounds so far, and we've really tried to test out different use cases to identify what our customers really need from the software and then built it out from there. So I would say, you know, the two rounds of beta testing has happened over the past year or so. And the software today compared to what it was a year ago is pretty incredible. Like we've made some amazing strides. So yeah, it's been neat to see it grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun. Yeah. That is so cool. And I think that point you made earlier, Benjamin, too, about killing the baby and how sometimes it happens four times and yeah. you're going through the process. Um, founders will be apprehensive when they're precious about something to kill the baby, to move on, to iterate on it. It's not just making an MVP for a lot of founders. It is actually like putting their heart and soul into something. And they don't realize that, hey, maybe they got ahead of themselves before they found that customer fit. Maybe they weren't beta testing with customers like you guys have been, which I think is a recurring lesson that we've learned and that we've 
had shared with founders who've been on the show recently as well. It's a partner with those customers while you're building it to really know the solution and to really zero in on what you can deliver and then get there together because then those customers are going to be your biggest advocate down the line. I mean, you're building a use case, I'm thinking in my marketing brain, on the go while it's happening, which will be extremely valuable in the long run. Now, talking about those use cases, could you guys tell me a little bit about some of the most exciting use cases you've worked on so far or the ones closest to your heart? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll kick it off. Like one of the coolest use cases, I think, like right at the very start was um, we had a lab from uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK reach out to us and they uh, were looking for a solution to use the Microsoft HoloLens, which is a augmented reality device. Um, so it has clear kind of um, a pass through on the front where you can embed kind of digital objects into the real world space and you can interact with those objects. But they wanted to take designing those experiences a step further with mobile EEG. So basically, you know, being able to capture brain waves as somebody is experiencing this or is in this real world, you know, environment experiencing something. And so there was huge challenges there in order to be able to be untethered to create these experiences. And it wasn't just doing it in a stationary environment, they wanted to have folks be able to traverse the Cambridge University campus and encounter these digital experiences. And so being able to not only you know, create those experiences, but also capture the brainwave data, but sync all of that data to a millisecond timing, because that's what's required when you're doing what we call event-related analysis on brainwaves. Brainwave data is very fast. Things happen in the brain very quickly, and you have to pick up on the minutia of that. So you need to have very precise timings. It was our first like augmented reality kind of testing of the software. Uh, typically, we were doing desktop and, and VR stuff. So that was really cool. It's also, I think, one of the first studies that has actually combined those two technologies. And I think it was really not only validating for our software, but it was a window into the future of what research is going to be or can be. And that was really exciting. And actually, Alex Clark, who we were working with at Cambridge, has actually come on to our advisory boards. I think that's one that I like most. I'll maybe ask Kyla. Hers. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, uh, the, the story about Alex joining our advisory board, because the same thing happened with our other advisor, Blake Richards. So Blake is a core faculty member at Mila. He's also a professor at McGill and really sits at kind of the intersection of neuroscience and AI. And Blake had a meeting with us and said, I have this idea for a project. You know, it's kind of out there. I don't know how long it's going to take to create. You know, I think he really thought it was going to be months and Benjamin created it and what? Yeah, I think I, and no, in like two hours, I think we were, wow. so yeah, so Blake uh, collaborates with some, some like folks at Google DeepMind. And uh, we know that even these large companies have these big development teams. And so when other researchers even try to replicate what they've done at these companies, it's very difficult and, and oftentimes just impossible to do that. Getting access to any of those types of AI training environments, especially in the 3D space that Google has created is very difficult because they put a lot of money into it. They've sunk a lot of money and it's proprietary. We wanted to just emulate one of those tasks. I was talking with Blake. I'm like, I, I think I could whip this up pretty quickly. We got off the meeting and I think by the end of that afternoon, I had the task kind of replicated in our software and which was published maybe six months later. So it was a really, really validating. That was a really cool use case. Yeah. yeah, we really value our partnerships with Mila. We're working with leading scientists there and it's so cool to be at the cutting edge of AI. It's just 
Yeah. I didn't expect this, you know, four years ago, but it's really. Yeah. I think uh, Mila has been awesome just to piggyback on that. We actually just got a matching grant with them. With Mila, we're going to be investing uh, 250K in building out our AI platforms. And let me, let me take a little bit of a detour here and, and talk a little bit just about large language models that have been like the, the focus of, you know, a lot of conversation lately. Often when we think about these large language models and how cool it is that we can interact with a model can fool us that it it could be human. We think about the really, you know, intense development of just the AI model, but really what is the key piece of that is having the data to actually be able to train that model. So, you know, there's actually like open source, large language models that you can train if you have the data. Um, but I think OpenAI, I think they it, they had an estimate that it cost them like $60 million to train that. And I'm sure they had to train the model several times. So hugely cost prohibitive to, to get all this data and to train. And, you know, you can't ask OpenAI to grab you a coffee, you know, it's, it's a text-based algorithm. And so we've been thinking like, how do we create the next generation of artificial intelligence? How, how do we have artificial intelligence that transcends our screen or that is what we refer to as like embodied artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence that can actually control things, you know, have, have an avatar, a digital avatar, or, you know, be a robotic system that is controlled. And, for creating human-like artificial intelligence, whether it's a chatbot or it's a robot or if it's an avatar, the, the key piece that you need is that human data. And right now, those chatbots were possible because we have the internet. But when you start venturing into embodied AI, there's no data repository of human behavioral data, of people interacting with the real world. Like we have to figure out a way of how do we build that data repository. And so while we're creating this content creation platform for folks that create these experiences that both humans and AI can interact with, you know, we're also building a platform for collecting the key ingredients to this next generation of artificial intelligence, which is super exciting. And it's why we have such a strong connection with Mila now and are working with some really awesome folks uh, over at Mila to, to actually bring this to life, which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that is so awesome. And yeah, I, I love to, I just came back from Saster last week and I was, I've been at a lot of events and I've seen a lot of companies talking about AI and LLM embodied AI. I've heard you say it and I haven't heard others say it necessarily the way you said it. So it is so exciting that what you're offering as a solution is also helping build the future, mm -hmm. helping build what you're going to be doing going forward. I think folks are kind of stuck in the generative AI rut at the moment and not really looking forward. They're still trying to figure out what we're doing with the technology on the table, with the open AI here. You guys are thinking forward. And I think also thinking very practically <laughs> without beaking it a moonshot, you're thinking about what the actual applications will be in a practical sense going forward. So I'm going to throw in a couple more questions real quick, but I'd love to know what are the plans for the future? I know you did talk about that a little bit with the embodied AI conversation. And also what's your take on the current state of startups? It's choppy waters for some businesses out there. And I think I alluded to how so many folks are calling themselves members of the generative AI kind of Board right now. What would be some advice you'd give for them and also your plans? Yeah, I mean, I think AI is really hot right now, right? I think if you say you're an AI startup, you know, there's a lot of attention, but I think there's sometimes some skepticism too. And I think it's just 
to actually have something that is worthwhile, like that there's, there's some substance to it. You know, I think we're able to demo our software for our customers and potential customers and they see the value right away. We're not kind of waving the AI card and being like, yeah, we're an AI startup. We have something. And so I think people really appreciate that and that we can show it is great too. Yeah, I think where there's like kind of two ends of the spectrum where like you can go out and you can pitch this big idea that maybe you don't have the uh, a lot of it built, but it's very exciting. And then there's the other end where you spend a lot of time kind of like in R&D mode, but it's a difficult to bootstrap a company. And I think we're at the very like far end of that, like bootstrapping. And I think it's kind of where we have the strongest footing is in the academic space. We have some really exciting things going on in the enterprise space and in market research and also doing cognitive type assessments and things like that. But it's been difficult on the kind of bringing people in because when you go to investors and you start saying, oh, I'm a PhD student and we're selling to academics, you know, their eyes kind of like glaze over, you know, it's it's not like a giant market for them. And I think like that's that's okay. I think we need the academic market to push the enterprise on these new technologies. We need them to figure out, you know, how to utilize these new technologies. So it serves a very definitive purpose, but it's also just like really pushed us to kind of do as much as we can, like just bootstrapping. And I think we've learned a ton, especially in the investment climate that has been for the last year. It's really difficult to go and pitch companies right now. So I think like you have to be kind of closer to the end of the spectrum where you're doing a lot of the work yourself and not trying to pitch these big ideas. And I think that that's just where things are at right now. That's what investors seem to be looking at. What is the product that you have? What traction do you have? Where is that traction? You know, those are all key factors. Just be prepared to to slog, you know, be prepared to not be have the ability to go and just pitch an idea and get funding to build it. Get your hands dirty and, you know, figure it out and learn things. You know, I think that's the biggest thing is the learner mentality. Like you just have to there's nobody else to do anything. It's just you, you got to figure it out. You don't have a graphic designer. You don't have a website designer. Like, guess what? You're now a graphic designer. You are now a website designer. Like, that's just like, that's just what being a startup founder is. Don't expect the right person to come in and solve any problems. Like you have to just you're the one solving them. You're the you're the person. Or starting a podcast. You're doing yeah. it all yourself. That's a beautiful <laughs> note to share with founders and listeners. Have that learner mentality. And investors are going to look at people who they know are going to actually roll up their sleeves and work on it, especially right now. It's not just about the pitch. It's about demonstrating you're going to do the work. Kyla, Benjamin, this was a pleasure. I hope to chat again soon. And thank you again for being on the show. Thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Uh